0: So we're going to be in the book of Matthew this morning, Uh, so if you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 3. If you ran out the door without your Bible this morning, we have some extras, so just give us a wave and one of our frontline team members will bring you one. And if you don't own your own Bible, you're welcome to take one of those with you, we'd love for you to have it. As our catechism said, it's important for us to be in God's word diligently and prayerfully, and so we want to do that together as a family and individually at home every day. So turn to Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to start at verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, "'This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased.'" Going on to chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, "'If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread.'" But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, everyone's cozy. Yeah, you got your seats. You made it in. Uh, It's good to be together today. Thank you to those of you who are praying for me last week. I was up uh, teaching at a youth retreat. 550, 600 some odd uh, youth were there and uh, youth made made, uh, decisions for the very first time to follow Jesus. So that was amazing. It was so exciting to be part of that and to see youth really do business with God. If you're here for the first time and maybe you aren't accustomed to being part of a church or even in a church or this whole thing is a little bit strange to you, you're like, Why were they singing the prayer thing? You kind of understand the rhythms of religious people. Uh, We're happy that you're here. We want you to meet Jesus. We're going to be honest about that. We want you to come to know Jesus. We believe he's the best thing that ever happened to this planet. And so we are just so excited that you're here and that you're jumping in to Church of the City. And hopefully we can engage in a really cool conversation about maybe some of the doubts that you have, questions that you have about the reason that we are even on this planet in the first place, and what is the purpose and meaning of life. At all. And we're excited today, especially because we're going to be jumping into a new series uh, for three weeks on temptation. Now, some of you, uh, you maybe heard that we were going to be talking about temptation and you got a bit excited. You're like, oh, this is going to be neat. And the reason maybe you got excited is, well, because you know t- that you wrestle with tempting things. You, you know that temptation is an issue for you. Now, if any of us in the room don't know what temptation is, here's the definition of temptation. And it's important that we all kind of get on the same page as far as what it is. Temptation is this. Temptation is... A desire to do something, especially something wrong or unwise. Temptation is a desire. So number one, temptation is a desire. It's not necessarily an action. Now this is really, really important because a lot of people are are oftentimes when they think about Jesus, they think, how could Jesus have been tempted? Well, Jesus could be tempted because he was a human being. It is not a sin, in the Christian perspective or worldview, to be tempted. It is a sin to act upon that temptation if it is towards something that is wrong. Uh, But many of us would probably agree on things that are unwise in our life. Two, temptation is a desire to do something wrong or unwise. Now, some of us, we might disagree over what is wrong or right, depending on your worldview. Uh, If your worldview is that of an atheism or secularity, uh, you might say, well, there's no such thing maybe as right and, and ultimate wrongs. Whatever science tells us is right or wrong or wise or unwise, that's maybe the way that we should go. Maybe you're a postmodern. I spoke to a postmodern recently. It wasn't like they were wearing a sign that said, I'm postmodern, by the way. It's just I understood. And they said, I've, I've removed right and wrong completely from my vocabulary. Like if it's right for you, it's right for you. What's well, right for you over there, what's wrong for you, it's wrong for you. You can do whatever you want to do. Now imagine if we actually built a society upon that principle. But then in Christianity, we take the position that we believe that what is right and what is wrong is defined by the maker of everything. That if he did, in fact, make the world in which we live, if there is a God and he did create, there's a way that in which he did create. And so we have to figure out the way in which to live that way so that things work the way that he designed them to. And so that's where we go to the Bible and we say, here's what the Bible says is right and wrong. We interpret it. We put on our contextual lens. We try to understand it historically. And then, then we take it and we apply it to our day. The next level, if you get into Christianity, is that Christianity says that sometimes you can be attracted to good things, but for wrong motives. So Christianity just doesn't want to get after your action. It wants to get inside your head was talking to somebody recently, they work in full-time pastoral work, and they were contacted about going and working somewhere else as a pastor. And so you'd think like, oh, that's like a really good thing to do, to go and be a pastor somewhere else. But as he began to talk to me about it, what he began to unearth inside of himself was if I were to go and do that, I'd be doing that for completely selfish reasons. Before uh, we planted the church, I was actually contacted by another church out west to come and be their teaching pastor for all of their young adult ministries. Imagine if I had actually taken, gone and done that. My motives would have been wrong, and Andrew was very quick to check my motives in that. So Christianity is going to go even beneath that level of the service and say, you can be tempted to things, but sometimes you can be tempted to good things, but you can be tempted for the wrong reasons. T.S. Eliot actually said that. He said, the last temptation is the greatest treason to do the right deed for the wrong reason. So while many of us might disagree on what is right and wrong, I think we can all agree that temptation is part of the human experience. And temptation also reveals something else pretty interesting. And you you might find this interesting, you might not. But what might be tempting to you might not be tempting to me. You ever thought about that? What might be tempting to you might not be tempting to me. And so the reality of temptation, and what temptation actually begins to become an opportunity for us, is to understand is that temptation actually tells us a lot about ourselves. And it begins to tell us a lot about our deepest loves, our deepest convictions, our deepest desires. And sometimes those are not always helpful. Helpful. So welcome. We're glad that you're here. Maybe again, you said, I'm excited. We're going to go and talk about temptation. Uh, Maybe now you're like, well, maybe I should have second-guessed actually jumping into this. Now, what do we do with temptation? Well, the first thing you can do with temptation is you can act upon it. This is what Oscar Wilde said. I can resist everything except temptation. Mae West said, I generally avoid temptation unless I can't resist it. Another person named Don Harold said, why resist temptations? There's always will be more. So this is the way some people deal with temptation. It's like, if, if it attracts me, if I'm tempted to it, I'll just do it. Why would I say no to myself? But then there's the other side, which is, well, I could resist it. And when we resist we actually realize that an opportunity is foreign. We'll talk about this more. This is what Ralph Waldo Emerson said. We gain the strength of the temptation we resist. We gain the strength of the temptation we resist. So with temptation, you can act upon it, you can resist it. But what about those of us that have acted upon it and now we're dealing with the consequences ourselves acting upon it? Right? Some of us are sitting us in this room and we've walked in and we've got baggage and we've been acting so much that we've actually have addictions in our lives. Now we might not say to the world, I'm addicted to this. And some of us are living in denial. So that's one of the ways that we try to deal with our temptation is we live in denial to it. It's not as bad as what you think it is or I can really handle it. Or then the other response is when you act is despair. Like, oh, I've done it. And now that you've done it, you feel bad about doing it. And so now you're coming at yourself in your head going, I'm a terrible human being. And you actually go into this kind of really trying to beat yourself up about what you've done. I think in some ways, all of us in this room can relate to this. Where we go to denial, it's not as bad as you think it is. I can handle it. Or despair. I'm a terrible human being. If this is you, the Bible is for you. Turn with me, Matthew 4, the temptation of Jesus. Now really, really interesting, this narrative is told in three of the four Gospels. So the reason that this is likely important is because it helps us understand a little bit more about Jesus. It helps us understand a little bit about Jesus' humanity, right? Jesus was a human being. He was also God's son, God himself, It's important for us to understand this, and each gospel writer wants us to understand a little bit more about this person, Jesus, and the things that he dealt with. This also, you need to understand this, where these temptations come is right after Jesus' baptism, as we're going to explore a little bit more. He then goes into the wilderness, and then he starts his public ministry. It's really important to understand this timeline. So let's look at verse 1. As we go through, I'll make some notes about it. And then we'll make some application as it relates to your life and my life and how we wrestle and deal with temptation. We start with, then Jesus. Well, why then Jesus? Well, again, it comes immediately after Jesus' baptism. So immediately after he's baptized, the Spirit descends on him. God the Father proclaims who this is. Jesus is now here. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, really interesting, lots of different theological wonders about this, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, I have a picture of the Judean wilderness. Most, of, most scholars believe this was a Judean wilderness. It was hot. It was dry. It was, it was one of those places that if you wanted to be alone and isolated, this was the place to go. There's not going to be a lot of people hanging out there, as you can see. Like, that's where Jesus is hanging out. A lot of us will be like, wow, like, I would just need lots and lots of water if I was going to be there. I'd need lots and lots of food. This is where Jesus went. He wanted to go and get alone with his father, and he goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The word tempted here is a Greek word that means to be coming after, to entice to be pulled in, and we read by the devil. We understand this to be Satan, the enemy. In Christianity, you have God, good, all that is right, all that is perfect. Opposition is Satan. And so Jesus goes into the wilderness. Now, what does this tell us? I think this tells us a couple of things. Number one, temptation is authored by Satan, but it's allowed by God. This is really, really important. Temptation is authored by Satan, and it's allowed by God. God himself does not tempt us, so as a result, there must be a reason in every single temptation that we face. Satan is the author of temptation, but God, because he is all-powerful, allows us to be tempted. This is really important. Begin to think about some of the things that you are tempted to that you know that are unhealthy to yourself. These things are authored by Satan for your destruction, but they're allowed by God for your victory. Really important. Number two, Temptation, think about the time in which this is happening with Jesus. Temptation plays a role in our preparation. It plays a role in our progress, our maturity, and character in the ultimate reality of who you and I will become. Notice how in life, and you know this, I hope you do, that all of your small decisions end up defining who you are in the end, right? Some of us think about just the big decisions, like I, I took that job, But what about all of the little small decisions, all the little temptations that you face through the day? Maybe for you, it's food. And you realize from the moment you wake up, the temptation is to not indulge and to practice self-control. I know that these cupcakes are tempting, by the way. But you know it, that from the beginning of the day, it's a bunch of small decisions that you will make time and time again. Am I going to indulge or am I not going to? So temptation, if you were to say no all throughout the day, it plays a role in your preparation. You become disciplined and trained in self-control. And for Jesus, he goes into the wilderness— He's going for a purpose of spending time alone with the Father, but he's also going, and the Father sees it as an opportunity for him to be prepared for his earthly ministry. You need to begin seeing that temptation from time to time is an opportunity for you to actually grow. Because not many of us grow from experiences that are really, really easy. Many of us would say, we actually grow completely opposite. We grow through the hardest things in our lives. Temptation is one of those things. Let's keep going. Verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 40 days and 40 nights. Now, 40 is quite significant. Pastor James talk, touched on a little bit last, last week. You think back to Exodus, in which we just studied as a church, they were in the wilderness 40 years. So the number 40 is important. Jesus is relating his experience back to that of the Exodus while they were wandering in the wilderness. And Jesus is out there, 40 days and nights is likely the amount of opportunity or the actual availability that if you were to actually not eat, that's as much as you can physically actually handle to do 40 days and 40 nights. And we read that it says Jesus was hungry. Now, this is really important because there are some worldviews within kind of the Christendom lens that don't like verses like that because that that leans into the idea that that Jesus was weak. Right? Some people rail against that. But this, again, is just showing us this is Jesus' humanity. He was weak. When Jesus can empathize with you and with me, when he can relate to us, we go to verses like this because he understood what it was like to be a human being going through human temptations, desires, hunger. Some of us as this goes on are going to be like, wow, I'm starting to feel that hungry, right? He empathizes. He knows. He is hungry. His need has been exposed. Verse 3. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, you cannot remove when he comes from the context and the situation in which it's placed. Notice when Satan comes. Satan tempts Jesus when he is alone and in need. This is what Charles Spurgeon Right. Jesus Christ was led away from human society into the wilderness and was tempted by the devil. Solitude has its charms and its benefits and may be useful in checking the list of the eye and the pride of life. But the devil will follow us into the most lovely retreats. I attended a seminar at one point about temptation and lust. And the, the person that was leading the seminar gave this acronym. And it's really, really important. You should write it down. It's on your sermon note. Here's what the acronym is. acronym is HALT. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. The greatest point that you will be susceptible to giving into temptation are times when you are hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. So here's what you need to do. You need to be aware of it. Because some of us are living in denial and we're like, oh yeah, you know, I looked at porn last week. Not going to look at it this week. I swear I'm not going to look at it this week. I went to church. Got my fill. I'm not going to do it this week. We put ourselves into situations where we're hungry. We're maybe angered. We're lonely. We get alone. We stay up really late and so we get tired. Satan tempts when you're at your greatest need. Because in temptation, you have the opportunity, am I going to choose God in this moment? Or am I going to choose Satan's temptation? And he knows it's authored by Satan and allowed by God. Notice what what Satan does. He says, if you are the son of God. Now notice where this comes. It immediately comes after God the Father told Jesus who he is. He said, he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Satan wants to disrupt the identity. He comes in and he says, if you are the son of God, if. Jesus was just told who he is. But this is what Satan wants to do with you and me. He wants to disrupt the relationship that you and I have with God. It's the same thing he did in the Garden of Eden. Eden. He said in verse verse 1 of chapter 3 of Genesis, Genesis, did God actually say? And then in verse 5, he gives them the option, you will be like God if you eat of this tree. But remember, they were already created in the image of God. When Satan comes at you, Satan wants to deter intimacy and identity with the Father. This is what Satan's goal when he comes at you with temptation is to deter intimacy and identity with God the Father. He doesn't want you to grow in your relationship with Jesus and he will do whatever it takes to deter you growing in your relationship with Jesus. Anything. There's this incredible book that C.S. Lewis wrote uh, and he writes, it's called The Screwtape Letters. And the way he writes it, it's fascinating. He writes it from the perspective of a demon writing to his, uh, another demon about ways to tempt humanity. You need to read it as it relates to this series. Because what you begin to read is, is Lewis gets into the head of how a demon wants to tempt you. And in many ways, as it comes out from the book, he just wants you to be apathetic about your faith. Satan wants you to be apathetic about your faith. He doesn't want you spending time alone with Jesus. He doesn't want you recognizing that you're a beloved son and daughter of the Most High God. He wants you to believe that you're junk. He wants you to believe that you're worthless. He wants you to believe that you need the things that you're tempted to. Because he wants to deter intimacy and identity with God the Father. Notice then what he says. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. So first it says, if you are the son of God, I bet you could do this. Now, the reality is, is that this temptation is less about bread than, than what some of us might believe. It's like, like, what's so wrong with bread? Like, Jesus, like, you've got to be hungry. And it'd be kind of like a wicked power to just like... Boom, we got some bread. What Satan is doing is Satan is tempting Jesus to prove his independence, serve himself, and go against God the Father's plan for his life. The, the easiest lie to believe is the lie that we don't need help. You know why you know what I know that this is so accurate is because so many people come to Church of the City or I've gotten questions from, And what they say is, listen, I know you're busy, but, uh." and what they're doing is they're trying to make an excuse, and I know you're trying to think like he's busy, but you're trying to say that really, I don't really think I need too much help, or some of us don't even reach out because we're like, we'll be fine, and we're living in denial. That's what Satan wants you to believe, that you don't need any help. Secondly, he wants Jesus to believe that he deserves it, that you're entitled. Do it, Jesus. You deserve the bread. You've already gone so many days. Just command these stones to become bread. That would be amazing. How many ways and things are you tempted to that you know are unhelpful, sinful, or unwise is the lie, I deserve this. I need this. What is that thing for you? Has the lie been, I need this, I deserve this? Satan ultimately wants us to believe that God is optional and that we are above him. Jesus, so I know the Father's plan has been for you to fast, but I think it'd be okay. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Do it on your own. Divert from God's plan for your life. We'll throw in lots of things, lots of lies. It's okay to sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend before you get married. How else are you going to know if you're actually compatible? Because sex is super, super important. Or it doesn't matter. Oh, we deserve it. We've been going for a long time not sleeping together. We could just like have a one-time thing and we'll be okay. God will be okay with it. Satan wants you to believe that you deserve and he wants you to believe that God's plan isn't the best way. He wants you to create your own plan. And he'll do whatever he needs to do to make that happen. This is a quote from C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters that I just mentioned. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that, they, that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light, God, and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft, underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Go against the Father's plan for your life, Jesus. It's only a stone, it's only a loaf of bread, it's only one click. And one click becomes two clicks, becomes three clicks, and then you're there. It's only one picture. I'll only let them see so much. And then it's two pictures and three pictures, and there you are. It's only one cupcake. No, it's two cupcakes. Whatever it might be, more and more and more. And in a society that tells you, have whatever you want. Have whatever your heart wants. You know what the Bible says? Your heart is deceitful above all things. Do not follow your heart, folks. Your heart is deceitful above all things. And Satan knows how he can deceive you, how he can tempt you. This is Jesus' response. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God. He starts with, This is written. It is written. These are the first recorded words of Jesus after his entrance into ministry and are an assertion of the authority of the scriptures. His first words Jesus goes to what he knows of God based on Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Jesus is declaring, We are better off to obey and depend on God, waiting for his provision. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. What's the application? Jesus knows that his greatest need is not a physical one. Jesus knows his greatest need is not a physical one. And this is completely counter to the culture that says, if you feel it, do it. Your greatest need is not a physical one. Your greatest need is a spiritual one. Jesus goes on, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus says, I must live by the word of my Father. I can't live by any other word that wants to deter me. It's the only place that I can find dependence. This is what 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 to 17 says about itself, the Bible. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching... Who here needs some teaching in life? For reproof? Who needs some of that, right? For correction? No, leave me alone. And for training in righteousness. Righteousness means right living with God. You want to know the right way to go? Go to the Bible. That the man of God or woman of God may be complete. You ever felt incomplete? Feel complete, equipped for every good work can be equipped. So here's the application. The word of God, the scriptures, is a weapon against temptation. Ephesians 6 verse 17 actually tells us, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You know, many of us, we're living our lives and the only time that we even think about picking up the Bible is on Sunday mornings. The only time. Yet our lives are filled with these addictions and temptations and all of these little things. And I'm not trying to guilt trip us. What I'm simply trying to suggest is that as you begin to do the homework in your life and as you begin to kind of take ownership of what's going on, you need to see that if your world is being filled with lies that come from the culture in which we live, from yourself, from your heart— you need something to counter that. You need to be told things that are going to be helpful to you, truthful to you. Things that are going to be life-giving so you can be complete. And God's word does that. You know, there have been people sitting in prison cells and they've picked up God's word and they've started reading in the New Testament. And I've heard stories of people get to like Galatians and they're like, I need to give my life to Jesus. It's living. It's active. It comes out of our hearts. Because we can't just go with the flow of what everyone in the world says. Imagine we just went with everybody's opinions out there. We need the truth. We need a weapon. And what Jesus is doing by saying these things back to saying, is Jesus saying, Jesus is relying on the Father's proven love and his identity as God's beloved Son, Because before he faced the voice of Satan, he heard the voice of his father. The temptation wanted to split the relationship. Jesus would not allow it to because God's approval was the only approval that he needed. Therefore, when we say no to temptation, we're saying yes to God. When we say no to temptation, we're saying yes to God the Father and Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, it says, Anyone who belongs to Christ, Jesus, has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. This is what that means. When you come to know Jesus, your desires, your primary desires, are not sinful things, or bad things, or wrong things, or unwise things. Your new person, your new self, wants Good things that God can give you and only he can give you. Some of us live in, this re- live in this mindset, and this is really important, okay? We live in this mindset of like, my flesh, my body wants this. We still live this side of heaven, meaning we still live in some brokenness. We look around, we see it. We see that around us. But your primary identity, if you were a follower of Jesus, is your primary identity is God's son, God's daughter with whom he's pleased. That when you're baptized, right? Some of us are getting excited. We're going to see a couple baptisms. Some of us in this room need to be baptized. We'd like to talk to you about that. When you baptize someone, you put them fully under the water because it's dying to the old way of life and coming back a new person. And your new person does not want those things that are tempting you. The thing that it wants is intimacy with God. And here's why this is so important. Because our old desires must be replaced with better and new affections. One of the ways that you can overcome temptation and see the opportunity is is to replace the old things with new and better affection. Some of us live from this mindset. I can't look at porn versus, in the new self, I want to grow in intimacy with Jesus, and porn would get in the way of that. I can't spend that money. It's not wise versus, I want to spend this money for God and his kingdom. Or if I spend my money on that, I won't be able to give to God's kingdom. I can't eat that cake. Versus, I want to steward well the body that God has given me and the temple he has created it to be. See what it is? It's replacing bad desires with new affections. So what is it for you? You know, I know a a, a lot of people that sit at home and play video games. And they're sitting there and they're engaging in like these kingdoms and they're conquering kingdoms and they're going out. It's like, I'm going to slay that dragon. Woo! And they're getting all pumped up. They're getting jazzed on slaying dragons. And there's a kingdom of God that is needing to advance in this world. And you're at home slaying dragons on a television screen. Bad desires, new affections. Because I'm telling you, it takes just as much thoughtfulness, It takes just as much energy. It takes just as much engagement and hours as you're spending playing video games as it does engaging in God's kingdom. You know, Jesus says, he says, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. What he's saying is, he's illustrating that there are a lot of people in this world that that are ready to hear the name of Jesus, but we don't have enough workers. Well, I gotta be honest with you, a lot of our workers are sitting at home playing video games. Bad desires, new affections. We replace them because our new identity wants it. Now, why does that matter? Because one of those areas is fueled by fear. Right? I can't. I shouldn't. The other is love. I want to because of Jesus. I want to because he's so good. It's amazing. You know, you think about, you know, if you're in a close relationship with somebody else, the the beginning stages of any relationship is like, I shouldn't do that because I promised them that I'd go and do this. Right? Eventually that becomes the best thing for the other person is for me to go and do it, and I want to. You know that. Parents with kids. There are times, I get it, I'm a dad of two little boys, where I just, oh man, I have to get on the floor and play with the kids right now. And that sounds terrible. I can't believe I'm admitting that. I have to get on the floor right now. But change that when it's fueled by love. I want to spend time with my children. I want to get on the floor and play with them right now. Because that relationship is far more important than me on the couch and my phone. Right? Now, some of us in this room, as I look around, you're actually starting to feel this. Like, oh! Oh! to party this morning. How do we respond? We respond out of our new identity. We respond in repentance. And your identity and my identity is only made possible by God's grace through Jesus. The only way for you to engage in this, in the opportunity that temptation provides is to understand where your true identity is found. And it's only through Jesus. Because by God's grace, grace has saved you from your sins of your past, your sins of your present, and your sins of the future. And some of us live in despair and we're like, I'm terrible, God, you must hate me. If only I obeyed you more, you'd love me more. That's not grace. That's you looking for a reward for the good things that you could do. And God saves us by his grace, meaning it's something that you and I do not deserve. And he gives it to us and he says, I knew that you were going to sin yesterday. I know that you were going to sin today. And I know that you're going to sin tomorrow. I know what you're going to do five years from now. But I still sent my son to die for you so you don't have to live in denial and despair. Get over yourself. And lean into Jesus. You see, despair views grace as being too shallow. It can't go to the depth of my sin. Denial, on the other hand, believes that it's too is not shallow, it's too narrow. That I'm not as bad as everyone thinks I am, and so I live in denial about it. And grace becomes narrow. When it is huge and wide and deep and covers everything. That's your new identity, that you are a beloved child of the Most High God. Last week, I was teaching on identity for this retreat, and we were talking about three ways that people identify themselves or where they get their identity from. And one of those is I am what I do, I am what I accomplish. You and I know this. You walk up to somebody, it's like, hey, how's it going? Good. Tell me about yourself. Well, this is what I do. And then you start rhyming off all these things because you want them to think that you're pretty awesome. Second is like, I am what other people say about me. So like, well, people tell me that I'm like pretty cool, so I'll present myself as being pretty cool. Thirdly, I am what I have. The stuff that we have or the stuff that we don't have matters so much to us. It's what we worship, if we're honest. And on Saturday night, as we're talking about what other people say of us, I gave this illustration because I've dealt with body image issues for a long time. And some of you might be like, body image issues? What are you talking about, Matt? Like, you seem to be in great shape. Well, see, I don't compare myself to the average man. I compare myself to Ryan Gosling and Zac Efron. And I want their bodies. So you're laughing, but some of us understand this, where I go to the gym, and the gym actually can be a punishment or it can be a place to enjoy myself. Because sometimes I think if I don't go to the gym today, I'm going to get fat. I beat myself up. There have been times this was, this was a number of years ago now, where I actually had moments where I actually th- forced myself to throw up, so that I wouldn't have the calories in my body anymore. This was a this was a temptation that was starting to come in my life. And at Christmas time, I'm sitting with Andrea. And I'm like, sweetie, I'm just feeling terrible about myself. And she's like, oh, man, like, you're the hottest guy in the world. Don't worry about it. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. You're super biased. You're super, super biased. Like, I don't want to hear your biased opinion right now. That did not help at all. And the next morning, I'm spending time in God's word. And I was reading Isaiah 62, verse 5. It says this. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so the Lord rejoices over you. Think of a wedding. Think of the look of a groom looking down the aisle and seeing the bride. Sometimes he's crying. Sometimes he's like, what have I done? In a good way, he's like, I've, I've never stood up in front of this many people before. This is nerve-wracking, and I'm about to commit the entire rest of my life to somebody. But then the bride, the bride walks in, and they're like, boom! Boom! That's why I'm here. There's my prize. She's mine. That's what the Father does about you. And he knows everything. He, like, he, he knows far more. Like, if you're standing there, you're getting ready, you're like, man, I'm going to make this woman the happiest woman in my entire life. And they're saying the same thing. I'm going to make him the happiest man ever. And sometimes I just want to stand up and be like, you're going to fail them. You can't do that. You need Jesus. Your spouse ain't going to fix you. They're going to make things a lot more complicated actually. I'm always a little bit upset with single people and they're like, "I just want to get married." I'm like, "Okay, okay, I get it." But when you get there, it's a ton of work. So hold on. Those of us that are married like, "Don't doesn't he know it?" <laughs> the point being, the groom stands there and he looks at his bride and he's rejoicing. This is our new identity. So how do we respond? We respond out of our new identity, that this God, this, this father, loves us, that he looks at us, looks at us as if a groom is staring down the, the way to his bride and is celebrating the fact that he gets to spend his rest of his life with her. This is what the father says of all of you. He loves you, He's crazy about you. New affections. If this God could have that much affection for me, I just want to give him all of my own affection. So we respond out of our new identity in repentance. And repentance simply means turning back to what truly matters. Turning back to what truly matters. It's a 180 degree turn and it's being honest about your situation. And typically nothing bad ever comes after good repentance. Life comes after good repentance. Because it says, wow, this God, what he has done for me through Jesus, I am free. And I want to turn to him with everything that I am. Because he bought me. And he knows me. He's crazy about me. That's amazing. And by in repentance, we then receive the Holy Spirit. And this is what the Bible tells us about the Holy Spirit because we're not left alone. Because some of us are going to leave here and we're going to be like, man, that was, that was a helpful sermon, but man, I still feel like the same person. Check this out. God gives us something incredible. In Romans 8, verse 11, we read this. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will g- also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Here's what that verse is saying. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is inside of you if you're a follower of Jesus. And if he can bring Jesus back to life from dead man to alive man, he certainly can give life to your bodies. And then in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, we have this incredible verse from Paul in which he writes to the the Corinthians, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you, or allow, because we know God allows it, you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, a lot of people read this verse and are like, well, like, this is just like super overwhelming in my life. And like, I, I can't take it. And if I can't take it, I must just give into it because I can't take it. Look what He says, But with every temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Friends, this is an invitation. This is an invitation for a way out from your addiction. This is an invitation away from the life that is all about you. It's all about needing. That is all about deterred intimacy with the Father. He says, my Holy Spirit is in you, and my Holy Spirit's going to give you new affections and new desires. And then when you're in the temptation, I'm going to give you a way out. With our guys' DNA group, we get super practical, where we're like, hey, as soon as you feel tempted, you have five seconds to contact one of us. If you don't contact one of us, you're likely going to give in to the temptation. And we're honest with each other. No matter the time, pick up that phone, text us. The very thing that could get you into trouble. Pick up that phone, text us. Hey, really struggling right now. Need your prayers. Because suddenly you're not in aloneness anymore. You've brought it into the light. And Satan hates it when we bring things into the light and when truth pours into those places that are dark. Over the next two weeks, we're going to be talking more about temptation. I hope you're excited. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that by the power of your Spirit we are given life. And by the power of your Spirit we're also given a way of escape. And God, many of us in this room today are sitting not believing what they just heard because Satan would love for them not to believe what they just heard. Satan would like to deter the intimacy that was just spoken about. Satan would like to deter even the belief that the life of freedom is even possible. So we pray in the name of Jesus that if there is any disbelief or unbelief here that is authored by Satan, that it would be gone. You're not welcome. Because we God's people want to live in light of the grace that we have been shown. Grace that saves us from our past, our present, and our future understanding that intimacy with the Father is the most important thing. And, and God, I pray that we would be wise in journeying with other people that are on the same page as us. And that we'd be honest with ourselves, God, that we would halt when we are hungry, when we are angry, when we are lonely, and when we are tired. May we not walk stupid, but God, may we walk aware, God, that there is an enemy. But God, with every temptation, God, you provide a way of escape and you allow it for our preparation that we would step into relationship with you and not away from it. God, we love you. We're thankful for this day. In your name, amen.